We've been discussing direct trade on the podcast since way back at episode 20, where Weston and I really tried to wrap our minds around what direct trade really is and what we think it really isn't. Since then, the topic has come up over and over again. Why does it come up so often? I believe the answer to that question lies in the weight the specialty coffee sector gives the term. Direct trade has become such commonplace terminology and its meaning has been so stretched that I believe it has almost lost its meaning entirely. I know I won't be popular for saying that or for saying this, but I'm here to challenge the term itself and I'm bringing on Perfect Daily Grind CEO and founder Henry Wilson to join me in the conversation. P.S. Skype gave me some serious phantom sounds on this recording with Henry, so bear with the audio at times. You can pretend there's a little mouse reading the newspaper in the corner of the room if that helps. That's what I did while I edited because I just couldn't get around it. Okay, let's jump in. Henry, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's just start it off at the beginning. This is your first time to the Coffee Podcast, so I want to give you a little bit of a background check here. You're the creator and founder and CEO, the managing director behind Perfect Daily Grind. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Perfect Daily Grind is and the mission behind the content that you produce? Okay, so Perfect Daily Grind, there are several different elements to us, but at the core, we're a coffee publication. So we're bilingual, we're in Spanish and English, and we publish around 10 articles a week. And our aims are basic. Our focus is to provide high-quality educational resources to the coffee industry and to the infused consumer for free, so anyone can read it online. And then also, as part of that, it all comes down to how can we basically empower the actors along the supply chain to get access to a fair income. So that comes from the producer all the way along the supply chain as well to see how we can get the best outcome. Also, a key component to Perfect Daily Grind is about empowerment. So we like to give a voice to anyone within the industry to share their expertise and opinions. And then also Perfect Daily Grind, although it started as just a copy publication, we've evolved a bit over the last couple of years. And we're also now working as more of a media company. So we have a digital marketing agency. And we work on several different marketing and sales strategies with coffee uh, or specialty coffee companies across the globe. And then also consultancy. So we work with all sorts of exporters or people that basically have a great product or are looking for an opportunity to how they can commercialize it or try to understand the best markets to sell to. So those are kind of the three things that we do. Perfect. And, and there's a show that you were just on a podcast, actually, and we're going to share that link so our listeners can go hear a little more exhaustive story about the way that Perfect Daily Grind began, what it's gone through and where it is today. There's there's a great podcast on that. I do want to point out in 2017, this is the stat that I pulled from LinkedIn, but it said you had 4.5 million page views in 2017. So what is, what is 2018 looking like? Can you talk about that or no? So we've just been consistently growing. Just um, It's kind of been amazing to be honest, because when I started, it was just a little hobby. It was just me in my room writing about coffee because I enjoyed it because I had an intellectual curiosity. But basically, we just continue to rise consistently. So I wouldn't want to give a forecast because although we've been very lucky that it's continued to like exceed that, but we've just been growing constantly. So to put it in context, Perfect Daily Grind is only really about four years old. That, that's crazy because, I mean, our podcast is about three and a half years old. So it, it's to me, I can very easily consider that amount of time. It's amazing the growth that y'all have had. It, it's it's really phenomenal. Let's jump on to something a little different here. You had mentioned in the podcast you were in how many days you traveled in 2018. I think it's phenomenal and it gives a little bit of background to who you are as a person. So can you answer the question, how many days did you travel in 2018 and why did you travel the way that you did? 
Um, I need to actually look at it and actually remember exactly how many days I travel. I'm thinking this year it must be at least 200 days. So I was just going over today and looking at it. So I spent, for example, a couple of months in Honduras, uh, over a month in Guatemala. I was in Russia. I was in the United States. I was in Brazil. And there's a number of reasons why I travel. So often I'm very fortunate to be invited to give presentations, predominantly on digital marketing in the context and specialty coffee industry. But then also um, basically explaining global trends and focused on the producer predominantly about, okay, where are the market opportunities and what's happening right now and what's happening with the specialty industry and what are the trends. But the main reason why I really travel is because when I started off in the coffee industry, I had a lot of expectations and ideas how things should be. And then when I spent time in coffee producing countries predominantly, I began to realize that a lot of those ideas that I had were a bit immature Hmm. or that they were kind of not that practical. So it was easy for me to come up with an idea saying, why don't you do this as a political science student? But then when I went there, I realized that actually there are a number of reasons why. So that's why I keep going back and back because I find that every day that I learn something new, and I can implement and understand. And also because the aim of Private Daily Grind is to provide educational resources and to improve the equity of resources along the supply chain. I really need to be engaging with people on all sides of the supply chain to offer value. Hmm. This feeds directly into that idea you felt you had some lack of maturity early on in your early, I mean, four years ago, right? As you started um, the publication and you saw the need to refine some of those thoughts that you had, and you probably had quite good ideas to offer, but there's something to say about perspective in this industry. And I think that we all need to, probably from every point in the industry, have a new perspective and see it from a maybe a bigger picture. And the topic that we're going to introduce first today is going to be the hot topic of direct trade. Love so- it. <laughs> So (laughs) what an introduction. Wow. We're going to discuss direct trade on the show. For the sake of the conversation, Henry, how should we define this term? How do you think about this term? I think that it's become antiquated and a little bit overused and abused. So anyone can apply the term direct trade and several other terms in the coffee industry. So maybe the term micro lot, even direct relationship and kind of apply it to their model. Because obviously direct trade at its core was the idea of the producer directly trading with the roaster and then basically removing the middlemen. And the idea was that by removing the people in between, that there was going to be an increased income for the producer because there'd be less people's hands sort of taking their percentage. Hmm. But then as you kind of study the coffee industry and you get more involved, you give the specialty side, you realize that direct trade in that essence of just skipping out everyone in between is possible in certain examples, but the majority of examples is not. Because is that roaster, let's say, from London, is that roaster going to go over to Guatemala, say, okay, I really like this coffee. Um, it's it's due to be picked whenever the date is in two months' time. Are they then going to pre-finance the crop and then say, look, I'll pay you now. And then when the coffee arrives in six months, just make sure it arrives to this quality level. It sounds romantic, but that's how a lot of people think the direct trade works. But often what happens is you need these intermediaries who can control and manage not only the risk, but the quality control and the pre-financing. And the financing is the big thing Mm -hmm. that most people disregard. Because of course, roasters in the States and England, we're not going to say, look, we're going to pay for something before we've got it, particularly when it comes to green coffee. And that is what direct trade requires. So there Mm -hmm. are a lot of great companies which do it, but then there are a lot of others which aren't able to. So I think that as I've kind of spent more time, I've realized that a lot of these concepts which are preached as the solution aren't necessarily because often if you're going to go and spend, let's say, as a, as a small roaster a week in a farm, hang out with the producer, learn about them, great, because you can perhaps impart and share some knowledge between you. But then at a fundamental level, 
how much value are you delivering to the producer if you're going and just buying one bag right. and you're going direct to them? Whereas maybe if there was a middleman who could guarantee the purchase of, say, one or two containers, is that better? There, there's an element, there's sort of a dark corner in this conversation with regard to direct trade because I see the words direct trade on a bunch of coffee bags, right? And it makes me really wonder, it's not standardized, correct? Like we, we can establish, at least to my knowledge, I don't think it's standardized. So there's sort of this marketing advantage to saying direct trade when it's actually not. Do you, do you see that as well, Henry? You have been all over the world. Have you seen that as a, as a thing that's happening? Well, the thing that I really see, if you want to get real and be like, look, this is real direct trade is when you're in Brazil, Guatemala, Colombia, and you go to a specialty coffee shop that roasts their own coffee, because then they will go to the farm, buy the farm in green, bring it back to their roastery, roast it, sell it to the consumer. That is direct trade completely at that level. And you do see that, but that is the real sense where I actually see it most common when I'm traveling. I think a lot of the time the term has been kind of molded to fit the needs of different businesses because now in specialty coffee, it's no longer just about quality. There is an element where people are looking for a degree of um, social enterprise Mm -hmm. and it's become almost like a market expectation. So you meet a lot of producers that say, or even roasters better, that say, look, (laughs) I direct trade. You think, well, yeah, doesn't everyone. So then the ones that don't now feel the need to say they do, even though perhaps they don't when it comes to realist sense. Because... Like you said, it's unregulated, the term. There's no authority saying, well, let's define the exact requirement to be a direct trade coffee roaster, as far as my knowledge. So there are a lot of people saying they're doing it. But what does that mean? Does that mean if we're going to break it down, the roaster, are they going to the uh, coffee producer in this small community where they're working with, according to their marketing? And are they actually committing to pre-finance that Mm -hmm. coffee? And are they sorting out all of the exportation and logistics? Or... Are they going to a producer, finding them, working with great coffee and then having an exporter locally there who can sort out the exportation for the coffee for them and then having an importer to receive it? There's lots of parts. And I I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing the way that it's been misrepresented. Hmm. I just think that there's been a lack of clear guidance as well. And as far as I really care when I get down to it, it's like, if that roaster is paying good money for the coffee mm-hmm. and has the direct relationship with the producer, then that's amazing. And that's all we really need. But that's what it comes down to. It's like, I wouldn't mind if I was working with a client and I had to go through a number of people right. as long as the client paid me a good price. You know, I wouldn't be bothered if there were people in between being involved and facilitating it, making it happen, as long as I felt like I was getting enough. And th- you're touching a little bit on something I've I've noticed even recently in the past week. I uh, saw a post about the middleman being the bad guy, um, sort of this uh, demonizing of of the the trader, the coffee trader, or what have you. And I see this common in direct trade conversations is this idea that everybody in between the say the roaster and the producer um, are are this kind of evil or this kind of bad thing. What do you think about that? I mean, when we all start off in the coffee industry, we all said direct trade, that's the way forward, skip out the middlemen. But like I'm saying, like it's a lot more challenging than that because if you want to remove all of these middle actors, someone has to, number one, do the work that they do and someone has to most importantly assume the risk that they do. So the key points that the, or the key values that the importers and the exporters are offering is the pre-financing. So they're paying for the coffee and storing it and then labeling mm-hmm. roasters to purchase it when they want. They're organizing the logistics and it's not the easiest thing to basically transport coffee in containers across the world. And then they're also having the quality control. So if 
directly with a producer you're obviously obviously having the risk that maybe you won't get the coffee that you that you originally wanted or maybe it might not taste as mm -hmm. great as you thought so i think that it's it's unfair to demonize the importer and the exporter because a lot of times they are necessary parts of the chain if you're a very large roaster and you have the infrastructure to do all of the things that i've mentioned then that's great as well but I think it's unfair to demonize because a lot of these actors are completely necessary for the specialty coffee industry as it currently stands. They're also fulfilling an interesting role that they're becoming increasingly somewhat like banks. Because if you think about it, they have to go to a farm, pay for the coffee, say, I don't know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars if they're buying multiple mm. containers of coffee. They're then having to transport it all the way to, say, the warehouse in the United States store that coffee for an extended period, then give it to the roaster. And often the roaster is not used to paying immediately. So the roaster might say, look, I need 30 days payment terms. So they're becoming an intermediary financial institution as well. It's basically offering finance to not only the producer, but also to the roaster. I'm really glad you made that point because it's probably safe to assume that most roasters cannot afford or cannot sustain direct trade. Financially speaking, as you mentioned before, there is this weight of financial responsibility or risk even to prepay a producer, a farmer, what have you. And most coffee roasters, I mean, in, in my area, like I'm just thinking of the ones in Austin, Texas, like direct trade, I can't, I can't see it being reasonable without the middleman. So it's strange to see direct trade on a bag. Like I have to wonder what that actually means. And the problem I see too, there's a lot of confusion over this term. And I think back to what you said, there's this, there's this expectation that everybody's doing it. And so then there's this pressure on the companies who aren't really doing it to say that they are doing it. I don't think it's necessarily malicious, but it seems to me direct trade is, is it's a very confusing topic. I mean, I mean, what do you think about that on the cafe side? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times that there's different things. It's like um, often we are looking as coffee professionals and imposing certain things on the consumer. And maybe we're overwhelmed with information. So part of it is that we're, we go ahead and as the coffee lovers, we're going to say, look, is this direct trade? And the barista is often not used to someone coming in and asking mm -hmm. for all this information because they're kind of showpiecing it. And there'll be people within the cafe or roastery who'll be really proud, who will talk to you for hours. But there are other people that just aren't used to having a consumer so interested in it. And then when you start asking, they're kind of like, well, why does this person want to know so much? But I also think that on the side of, of the direct trade is that there are so many different ways to look at it. And like I'm saying that to me, it doesn't really matter as long as the producer's getting a good price for their coffee and they're happy with the relationship. And if they're building long-term relationships with producers through import and through exporters, that's great. And I think that if you're going to look at Austin, where you live, for example... I mean, it's very challenging for a roaster there who would be, be able to go directly to a farmer and just pay for their coffee. I'd expect at the very least they'd be going through an exporter mm -hmm. and they'd be purchasing coffee FOB. It's, it's easy now, like to, for me, after working coffee for a while to look at it like that. But when you start, you really think it is as simple as, well, let's just skip mm -hmm. out all of these people. They're all greedy. They're all, they're all, doing, they're all taking money that could potentially go to the farmer. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove that and I'm going to make it better. A lot of times it's just not that simple. Like it's about looking at the actors along the chain and then seeing, do they add value? And if they do, then they're necessary and they support the industry in some cases. But if they don't, then they will gradually become eroded. Yes. You know, it's like anyone, if you're buying and selling something, if you're not doing anything, you're just buying it and selling it, just a really old school broker or trader, then eventually people will just not need you. And this happened in a lot of industries online now where people have just gone straight to the direct, mm. to the retailer and skip out lots of people. In coffee, it hasn't happened quite like that because there's a lot of uh, value offered by the middleman. And I don't want to come across as someone who is the great ambassador for the importer and the exporter. I just think uh, it's just a more of a realistic approach to the industry. But I would always encourage 
roasters to have the connection with the producer as much as possible. And if they can do direct trade, phenomenal, amazing. But if they can't, then just make sure that they're just connecting with the producer and have that relationship. Because what coffee really comes down to a lot of times is trust. You're basically paying someone for better coffee. And sure, you can quantify the quality of that coffee through, say, cupping protocols or grading or number of different ways, visual defects. But sometimes it comes down to, do you believe, say, does Henry believe that, say, Jesse's coffee is as good as he says it is? And do I also believe that if I ask you to make this coffee and if it's not quite as good as what I expect, Am I still going to pay the price? Or am I going to say, hey, I asked for better. I'm not going to pay for it. So it comes down to real trust and relationships. And that's why it's so important because it's managing a risk. I mean, work in agriculture for producers is incredibly uncertain. So it's really the whole relationship. So the roasters that I really admire are the ones that go to arms and say, look, I'm going to work with you for this year. I'm going to ask you to do these experiments. I'm going to ask you for these exotic coffees. But if they don't turn out amazing, I'm still going to buy them. And they might say, look, I'm not going to buy them at the elevated price, but I guarantee you this price for the coffees. And then they come back and they work with the producer year after year. And I've seen great results from that because it's like anyone. It's like if you have a team member, it's not just about giving someone one piece of work as a one-off. It's about nurturing that relationship and building them and giving them opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a level of commitment assumed um, in this direct trade relationship that looks to me, I mean, and this is the danger, right? That it sounds romantic, but that's hard work. I mean, that's a risky hard work, right? From a roasting perspective to a producer. Would you agree with that? Risky hard work? Yeah. If the roasters really want to have a really big impact, it's about sharing the risk because it's too easy. There's so much great specialty coffee out there and there's so many options. But if a roaster is really committed to working with this one producer and changing that producer's life, it's about saying to them, okay, well, look, I'm going to buy your coffee. And if it doesn't turn out so great this one year, I understand that your livelihood depends on this and we have a relationship. It's like if you have uh, an employee in a company, if they don't perform for a couple of weeks or a month or a while, you might say, you might take a step back and think, well, why is this? What's the next best step I'm going to take? Am I just going to immediately remove this person? Or am I going to try and appreciate the situation? Or what's the long-term benefits for me and for them? Hmm. And I think that that is, there is an element of risk. And that's important that you've touched upon. Because I think the coffee industry and the specialty industry is moving towards that understanding. But it has to be shared risk. It has to be that the roaster is going to pay for the coffee. Uh, because otherwise, we're basically saying to the producer, okay, look, I want this amazing coffee. I want this honey coffee. I want this geisha, I don't know, 88 cupping score, and I'm going to pay you this much. Great. I've made it, and you pay me. And then this first year, you pay me this much. What about the next year? Ah, oh, well, actually, this year is only an 84. Okay, well, I'm going to halve your income. Oh, I wasn't prepared for this. This wasn't what I anticipated. I, I thought that we, we had a deal. Well, your neighbor still do it, is going to do the coffee as well, so I'm just going to buy from your neighbor. Hmm. And, it, and this is what happens. And it's no one's fault, but it's just an industry that we're seeing. Like this coffee industry is fascinating because everyone talks about a diminishing supply of specialty coffee. And I do see that in some respects. But then I also am seeing, like I was in Brazil recently giving a presentation and I asked the room, so there were about 2,000 people, who has coffee to sell, 85 cupping score above. And like the whole room raised their hand. So although there is trends to say that due to climate change, we're going to see a diminishing supply of specialty coffee. There is still an abundance of coffee on the market, particularly now when the uh, sea market price is so low. Mm-hmm. Producers real have an incentive to try and access that specialty price premium. There is a lot of opportunities for the buyers. I always encourage people to make that direct relationship and build it. And it's like any business relationship you have. Like You want to have someone who works with you for a year, two years, not someone who just works with you for one month because you can't really plan your business around that. I feel that we're really touching on, this a topic, I'm, I'm reaching back in my mind, we did an episode a long time ago about relationship coffee, and I think direct trade came up, but the idea here, 
sounds a lot more like you'd mentioned, like a business relationship. Like if you have a team member um, who, who say even works for you, that's that's an investment and, and a successful long-term mission there is to invest in that person and to to be there through the, the good and the bad is the idea. Um, here applied sounds like uh, this this roaster producer relationship is through the good and the bad as well. It's a it's a relationship um, business sort of model um, happening. Henry, do you do you think that direct trade is is this? Should we continue to use this term? Is it a good term for us to use, or should we reconsider? Should we redefine? Should we should we carve out a new a new uh, way when talking about these kinds of things? This kind of future in coffee. It's something I thought about a lot, but the more I look at it is that these terms do often often value because the consumers are often paying more when they read about them. And there is a general awareness and a loose understanding of the coffee industry that direct trade equates to a higher price premium for the, for the farmer. But the trouble is, is we could say, okay, let's scrap this term and let's introduce another one. But it becomes so confusing because we hear about direct relationship, we hear about direct trade. There are a number of different forms. And then when you get into the certifications, there's different certifications. And I feel like we're all bombarded with all these terms. And one thing I've definitely noticed is that, okay, the idea is that we make a term and then the industry adopts it and we implement it in our businesses. But often what a lot of companies like to do is obviously offers value to their business is they don't want to say, let's look at exactly what this mm. person's doing and use the same term because where's the USP? How can they build a brand around that? So what they're trying to do is they're trying to carve their own form of it. So what we have now in coffee is we have loads of companies and importers and roasters that all have their own unique interpretation, their own certifications often, because then they can just distinguish themselves and separate themselves. And the idea isn't that it's supposed to be a level playing field like that. The idea isn't that we can compare all of them side by side. They're implementing it into their brand and marketing so that they have a point of differentiation. Right, to create an advantage against competition. Yeah, and I mean, I understand that entirely. It's like, it's easy for me to say, well, why doesn't everyone just adopt this term and we'll all just introduce it? But then they're going to say, well, why? If I, uh, The whole point is that we have a unique system that we have built over the last five years. We have unique relationships with, with producers. We're doing things differently for other people, and I don't doubt they do. So why should they have, have to slap the same term or brand or theme to their model? Yeah, that, that that's fair. And now I'm really getting curious here. We we've talked about the producer, we've talked about the roaster. Henry, would you recommend for the consumer, the people who listen to our show who are primarily consumers drinking coffee w- with regard to direct trade and these kinds of things, what should they do? They they come into a store, they see direct trade on a bag. What would you recommend? Well, number one is the consumers are the ones that everyone's looking towards being like, we must convince the consumers to appreciate the additional value because that's what's going to change the industry. If we get the producers to pay more for good coffee, then we're set. Because once there's demand at the consumer level, everyone will follow. But I think consumers like it, it is really this simple. It's just that when you go to a coffee shop, just the more information you have available for you, the more traceability there is and the higher the likelihood of the farmer getting a better price. So, for example, if you're buying a coffee and it just says Arabica, okay. If you're buying a coffee and then it says Colombian, better. If you're buying a coffee and it says Colombian from uh, Antioquia, better. If you're buying a Colombian and it says from that town within Antioquia, better. And then if you're going and it says the farmer's name. So often the more information, that means that the farm is more traceable Mm -hmm. generally. And that means that if you can trace it, that means that if you wanted to, you could go and look up that farmer, find the information, verify the information. Accountability. Yeah, accountability. Exactly. When it becomes anonymized, that's when the consumer should probably say, well, where is it? And the second part is if you're looking at a coffee, you think, wow, this is cheap. This is so cheap. How can it be this cheap? The answer is that because it is often, there's a reason why it's so cheap, you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> do you, 
Well, why is what is that reason? I, 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 I <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I feel I feel you hinting. Well, I, I'm like I'm on the edge of my seat here. And well, thank you, thank you. No, no. what I'm the reason. I mean, fundamentally, if you're looking at product, you think, wow, that is so cheap. How can it be that cheap? There's probably a reason why. It's either that there will always be opportunities where promotions and lost leaders in the market will be able to discounts. But then often if it's a product is consistently incredibly cheap, you have to think, well, how much are the people being paid? If I'm only paying this mm-hmm. much, then is that person being paid along the supply chain? And it comes down to being that simple. It's I mean like we accept that when we go to buy some, for example, some beer or something or wine, if it's really cheap, we think, hmm, what sort of quality is that really? Mm, where does that really come from? But when it's coffee, we're like, oh, this is all good. It's cheap because coffee's cheap and I'm going to drink yeah. it. There's, there's a lack of equity in our, our buying I mean, as consumers, there seems to be a lack of equity in the way that we purchase different products. Coffee, yeah, you, you see cheap coffee, you're like, oh yeah, coffee's cheap. You see cheap beer, you're exactly right. It's, it's Yeah, if you saw beer and you were like, man, this is like a dollar unlimited refills, you'd be like, hmm. And obviously you can't compare those two products together. Yeah. You might be like, this is the best place ever, let's go. Or you might be like, hmm, I think I'll avoid yeah. it. And I think... When it comes down to coffee, it's if you do see a product and you think, God, that is very cheap, then you need to think, well, why is it so cheap? And try and look for the information. Because often those products which are incredibly cheap and those coffees which are cheaper, it could be because, well, a few reasons. It could be that the producer is paid very low. So you can see, well, if this if this coffee is so cheap, is it anonymized? Is there any link to the origin which it comes from? It could be that it is technically 100% Arabica. But what does that mean? It's like saying a product, you could, you could sell a product from the supermarket and you could say this is 100% beef, but you know what part of the cow. Hmm. So you can have coffee, you can have 100% Arabica, but it could be the defective coffee. Right. And it's just kind of stating a, taking a step back and thinking about it. But then also on that note of saying the defective coffee, as you get more and more involved in the supply chain and you spend more time in coffee producing countries, you appreciate that every coffee has a market. So we champion ourselves as specialty mm-hmm. as the savior. We're saying, look, we're coming in here, we're paying epic prices for coffee but we're still only moving relatively small volumes of coffee. So all coffee has a market. So it's not to negate the commercial coffees and say, look, these suck, like we are the solution and that they all need to copy us and follow us. It's about understanding that there's a lot of coffee and all of it needs to be paid for. And some of it is worth more and others not so much. But for the producer, all of the coffee has a value. So when you go to a farm, you'll see, you'll see all coffee from all different grades and you'll begin to appreciate that the farmer is depending on the commercial coffee to cover his costs. And then the specialty might be profit in some Mm -hmm. cases. Uh, This would be a perfect opportunity to segue into the next topic, but I I have to bring it back just a little bit before we do that. I have to, I guess, look a little closer at what we were saying, the message that we're trying to send here uh, to consumers listening to the episode. Uh, You know, back when you were talking about traceability and we kind of nailed down, uh, that's accountability. So it sounds like the message to the, to the consumer, any of us that are drinking coffee um, primarily would be to kind of do your homework, right? To, if, if you're really interested in this kind of stuff and, and you're passionate about it, there's a level um, to which you need to do your, your, um, your homework and see if things are traceable and see if you can actually find out. Because I, I think that, that promotes um, the well-being of what you said earlier, Henry, which is that relationship of trust. Sharing risk as well. Sharing risk is what I was looking for. Um, so I guess you could, as a consumer, the encouragement for me at least is to do your homework and see if there is that shared risk. I think that's a, that's a pretty solid message for the promotion of um, producers getting paid 
a better price. What do you think? Yeah, and like really one of the reasons why I started Perfect Daily Grind is because I had a ton of questions and I started looking for answers and couldn't find them. I think now, not just because of Perfect Daily Grind by any means, there's now a lot of great resources available. There's great podcasts, the coffee podcast is... <laughs> <laughs> not bad. <laughs> One of my personal favorites. <laughs> but, but no, there's, there's, there's a lot of information available. So if you have those questions, you can, you can read these articles or you can listen to podcasts and you can start getting a better awareness. And now we are in an age, in an era where if you want to find information, it's not like you're isolated. I mean, uh, for example, at Perfect Daily Grime, we have global team members that work in across the world. And we're not limited by geographical boundaries. We just work as if we're in an office together. Mm. So if you have a question and you think, wow, I'd really like to know that producer, the chances are that a lot of those producers, they're not totally inaccessible. You can find them. You can talk to them. You can email them even via their website and get that information. Yeah, it's the, the world we live in. It's it's changing all the time with, with connecting and networking. And it's it's been an awesome thing, I think, for the coffee industry. What do you think? Has direct trade lost its mojo? Should we continue using it to refer to the supply chain relationships that connect roasters and producers while paying the producers a good rate for their quality coffees? Let us know your thoughts on Instagram at The Coffee Podcast or reach out to us on our website at thecoffeepodcast.org. I want to go ahead and thank Stay Golden Coffee Co. out in Nashville for sending me some delicious coffees to drink while I worked on the podcast this week. I especially enjoyed their Tanzania coffee, uh, the AB uh, Tarime. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but it's from the Mara region in Tanzania. I'll provide a link to their coffees if you've never tried them before, and uh, you can kind of hyperlink your way that direction and see if you want to try some for yourself. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing. Thank you.